chapter 9, verses 10 through 19. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, but behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Our last two studies have taken us from Jerusalem to the Damascus Road and finally into the city. But as the narrative recorded Saul's journey through these physical locales, we've moved through some different spiritual landscapes as well. We began with Saul the sinner, the enemy of God's kingdom, in the territory of God's abundant mercy. Saul was a vile and vicious person, but his sins grew out of ignorance and unbelief rather than a high-handed, open-eyed hatred of the truth. And for this reason, according to his own testimony, he obtained mercy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. On the road, Saul had a remarkable and unique encounter with the risen Lord Jesus, and we moved into the territory of his apostolic mission. The purpose for Jesus' appearance and direct encounter with Saul, by Jesus' own testimony in Acts 26.16, was to call Saul into apostleship and qualify him as a witness of the resurrection and minister of the gospel in that special service. But Jesus was very clear that Saul's spiritual journey was not finished on the road to Damascus. He had an encounter with the light, but he was still blind in a very real sense of the term. So Jesus said, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told the things which are appointed for you to do. Acts 22 and verse 10. This move will bring us into the territory of the gospel's abiding method. And whilst Saul's story has been filled so far with some extraordinary things, we're about to see something that is much more familiar to the consistent records of Luke throughout Acts, recording how one is converted to Christ. 
After his meeting with the Lord, Acts chapter 9, verses 8 through 9 says, Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. God had permitted him to look into his glory and see the physical body of the risen Jesus Christ, just as the other apostles before him had seen. But then his eyes were overwhelmed, and he was blinded in order to remind him that his soul was still in darkness and could be illumined only by the power of the gospel, a power very much outside of himself, and one that he could only come to know by the preaching of the word of Christ. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul's physical condition represents his spiritual state. He is lost, helpless, and unable to take one step forward on his own. But his heart is now broken, and his soul is afflicted with such sorrow and remorse that he can only fast and pray. Gareth Reese said it this way, The experience on the road was a turning point in Saul's life, but it did not make him a Christian. He was subdued, but not saved. The surrender of a man's will in no way clears his case. Thus, we resume in verse 10. Now, there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. We've not heard of this man before, and we do not know about him after this incident. Some suppose that he was among the 70 sent out by Jesus in Luke 10, verses 1 through 24, but there's no clear evidence for this. Because of the way he describes the persecution in Jerusalem in subsequent verses as a matter of hearsay for him, it does not seem that he was a refugee from the scattered Hellenists of that city. The description, a certain disciple, should perhaps move us to consider him as a simple follower of Jesus, possibly a convert from the day of Pentecost, or perhaps from one of the other refugees who had come up from Jerusalem. Although he may previously have been a synagogue leader, in fact, as a good indication that he was, the simple introduction indicates that he held no special office among the Christians in this city, but was chosen for a remarkable task, evidently for two reasons. First, as we work through the narrative of Acts chapter 9, I want us to watch and listen for how much like Abraham this Ananias sounds. His faith is in many respects as powerful an example as that of the ancient patriarch, and there were likely not very many who the Lord might have found to do what he was willing and able to do. Second, in Acts 22 and verse 12, Saul, offering his own retrospective of these events, described Ananias as a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, that is, in Damascus. This was deeply meaningful for two reasons. It would allow Ananias to approach Saul more easily if he happened to still be in the company of enemies of the Christian faith. After all, he had a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. As Christians went, he was viewed with the least suspicion and animosity. And furthermore, his testimony concerning Saul himself back to the other believers in Damascus would carry more weight because of his own noble reputation. Luke continues, And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The illustrious New Testament scholar Dr. Gerhard Kittel wrote a fascinating article in his theological dictionary, The New Testament, 
about the visions recorded in Christian scripture and the words used to describe them. He concluded that in these visions, there was more of an encounter with a voice than an actual apparition of the Lord like the one Saul encountered on the road or the theophanies of the Old Testament era. So it was likely a dream in which the Lord came to Ananias and somehow made himself sufficiently known that Ananias recognized it was a true supernatural message, or perhaps it was an audible voice that spoke to him from heaven. But the remarkable thing is the man's reaction. The Lord said, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. That expression, here I am, appears throughout sacred history like a battle cry of the faithful, from Abraham, from Moses, from the prophets, and it's much more than a simple affirmation of hearing or information of location. It is a humble expression of complete self-submission to the call of God. The full thought is best expressed in the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6 and verse 8. Here I am, Lord, send me. Verse 11, So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. There are several things to consider here. The layout of the city of Damascus changed many times over the years as it was sacked and pillaged and ravaged in wars. So there's no way to be sure where Straight Street was located, but it was called this because it was particularly narrow, which is really saying something considering the narrowness of most streets in ancient Middle Eastern cities. Who was this Judas in whose house Saul was staying? Mark Moore supposes that it was Saul's Damascus contact who was, like him, an anti-Christian zealot. More reasons that Judas would have known Ananias, considering what Saul says about his reputation, and would know that he was a believer, making this visit all the more perilous for Ananias. We'll have more to say on that in just a moment. The second significant point from this verse is that Saul has been, according to Jesus, and was at that very time praying. That does not surprise us, since Saul was a devout Jew who is now cut to the heart, having realized that he has been violently opposing the will of God, kicking against the goads, to use the words of Jesus himself. Prayer was fitting, but it was not sufficient to save him. I want to spend a little bit of time reviewing Saul's experience to this point. Listeners will know that I believe that the New Testament presents patterns of sound doctrine and right practice that define and demonstrate true Christianity for replication throughout time and throughout the world. I believe that because the words of the apostles themselves tell me that I should believe it, chiefly the apostle Paul, who said that his conversion was a pattern for those who are going to believe on Jesus for everlasting life, 1 Timothy 1.16. So it is important for modern believers to measure their own beliefs and even their own experiences against the truths illustrated in the case of Saul and other true conversions as revealed by the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. Saul was separated from his mother's womb, according to Galatians 1.15, but that did not prevent him from being lost and condemned as a sinner. Saul saw the risen Lord, 
but that did not save him. He conversed with Jesus and learned that God had a special mission for him, but still he was lost. He believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. That is, he accepted the truth of the Christian message concerning Jesus, the very truth which he had previously considered a blasphemy worthy of death. But that alone did not justify him before God. He fasted and prayed for three days, but still he was a sinner. Modern religionists would say that these experiences and phenomena are what salvation is all about. Yet Saul had all of them, and was full of grief and guilt and misery. Saul himself would have testified to this. It seems clear that he was praying for a clean conscience, for pardon of his sins against God and his Christ. And in answer to that prayer, Jesus continues in verse 12, In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, pay attention to this. Before calling Ananias into service, God built his plans around his obedience. Saul had already seen a vision of this man coming to see him. He even knew his name. When God makes elections, they are right. And although the servant does not always agree at the outset, God's choices are set in absolute wisdom and his complete perfection and he will not take no for an answer. Nonetheless, even noble men often protest against particularly challenging tasks. And the Bible says, Then Ananias answered. Reese notes that the Greek more literally reads, But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. There are a few points of interest we should mention from these words. This is the first time in Christian history where the followers of Jesus are called saints. The meaning is simply the holy ones who have been set apart by the power of the gospel. Ananias demonstrates an awareness of Saul's plot, and that may indicate that uh, a leak had been made in the Sanhedrin. Some scholars suppose that men like Nicodemus still occupied a seat on the council, but if they were not yet disciples, they were extremely sympathetic to the Christian movement, and they might make efforts to spare as many lives as possible from the murderous intentions of their baser companions. Ananias calls the followers of Jesus, those who call on your name. And we want to remember that because it's going to be significant in just a moment. Of course, the most important matter here is that Ananias is protesting against God. There's going to come a time in the life of every believer when he or she must answer the question, Is God ignorant? Now, that question seems so blasphemous to us most of the time that we cannot imagine ever asking it, but the testimony of the Bible shows the greatest men and women of faith throughout time falling into despair when they are confronted with a strange command of God that seems to manifest an utter ignorance of the way things really are. But of course, God always manifests in time the truth that He is the one who knows all things, and we are the short-sighted, the blind, 
the little children who do not know how to go out or come in. When the work is done, we can only praise Him and confess how great it is that it was God and not me who did this work, for I was an ignorant fool and surely would have failed and ruined it all. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God knew Saul. He had chosen him. Saul will later say in the Spirit that God set him apart from his mother's womb and guided the events of his life. Saul will come to be called the Apostle to the Gentiles, but that expression is often misunderstood and stretched to teach some very bizarre and troublesome things. Saul did not have a message for the Gentiles that was substantively different from the message for the Jews. There were not two Gospels or two churches. In fact, in the course of time, most of the other Apostles preached to as many Gentiles as Saul, and Saul preached to as many Jews as them. The point is that Saul was especially suited to effectively break through the cultural barrier into the Gentile world more so than any of the Judean Jews who made up the rest of the apostolate. Saul significantly paved the way for the ministries of his apostolic brethren, and it would be difficult to imagine anyone else who could have done what he did. By his upbringing, his political privileges, his education, and his natural gifts— he was truly a chosen vessel. McGarvey says the term here refers to a richly framed and intricately designed box suited for the presentation of a precious jewel to a dignified recipient as a gift, like a box you would give to a king holding a very priceless and rare treasure. But in the great paradox of the kingdom of heaven, Saul would present the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, not in his own might and power and strength and beauty, but through his suffering for the sake of Jesus' name. The great man, the darling of Israel, would become a fool of God, and Christ's strength would be made perfect in his weakness. Verse 17 and Ananias went his way and entered the house. Do you see what I mean about how much like Abraham Ananias was? The Lord called, and he answered. The Lord sent, he did not understand, but the Lord assured, and Ananias went. He went into a dangerous situation. One writer says, into the lion's den. But he went by faith in God. And laying his hands on him, now, it must be here that Ananias was one who had previously had the hands of the apostles laid on him so that he had received the gift of healing from the Holy Spirit. And this might have been another reason why he was specifically chosen to do this work. He said, Brother Saul. Some Bible readers have insisted that Ananias calls him brother as a Jew, not as a Christian. Others suppose that the whole scene better supports that Ananias used this greeting as a term of comfort and consolation and acceptance to welcome and to beckon Saul farther on his faith in Jesus. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Two things are promised to Saul from Ananias' visit, healing of his blindness and the filling with the Holy Spirit. What we should note from the text is that there is no indication that Saul received the Holy Spirit as a result of Ananias laying his hands on him. The next verse tells us what happened immediately through Ananias' hands. Immediately, there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once. Some thick growth was peeled off his eyes, and he could see again. So the healing of his blindness was the result of the imposition of Ananias' hands, and that is all the text mentions of that. What then do we make of the promise that Saul would be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, thus far, when Luke has used that expression, it has always carried the idea of miraculous manifestations of the presence and power of God. It has been followed by supernatural earthquakes and tongue-speaking and prophetic messages, so it's very difficult for me to take it with any other meaning here. Of course, the challenge is that as we go on reading the text, there are no miracles. So, we seem to have three possible conclusions. Number one, what Ananias promised did not come to pass. That is not acceptable. Number two, What Ananias promised did not refer to miraculous power, but rather to participation in the kingdom of heaven and all of its blessings. That is certainly possible. Or number three, what Ananias promised did refer to Saul's miraculous empowerment that would enable him to perform his apostolic ministry. However, it did not come on this occasion, but rather as a result of what happened here. Now, at the present time, I favor the last of these options largely because of the consistent use of the phrase, be filled with the Spirit in Acts, and also because of what Saul himself testified later in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, that Jesus enabled or empowered him because he counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry. In other words, The apostolic ministry of Saul was given to him on the terms of his faith in Jesus Christ and his submission to Christ's authority, which is in perfect keeping with everything we've learned about the apostolic ministry from the teachings of Jesus in John chapters 14 through 17, in Mark chapter 16, and in Acts chapter 1. And here was Saul's occasion to manifest that trust and submission by obeying the things which it was appointed for him to do. Directly, Ananias came to Saul to heal him and to help him begin his Christian life. But ultimately, this qualified him to be filled with the Holy Spirit and receive the helper of the apostles and begin his special work in the kingdom. The details of when and how that happened will be covered in the next study. From here, Luke continues in the narrative of Acts with the simple declaration, And he arose and was baptized. By now, Theophilus understands the role that baptism plays in the conversion of the lost. And when Luke mentions it in narratives, it will always be like this, assumed and incidental. Sometimes he won't mention it at all, because he knows his readers recognize it is there. But because of the current religious climate in which we live— We need to be consistently reminded why people were baptized in the early days of the Christian faith. We've stopped at various points in Saul's journey from Jerusalem to check on his spiritual condition, and every time we have found that he was still lost 
and full of misery and guilt. But after he is baptized, Luke announces a marked change. Verse 19, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. What a change! The fast of grief and the hours of prayer are over. The blindness is gone, and sight is restored. And now the enemy and persecutor of Christ is in happy fellowship with Christ's people. What happened here to make such a drastic transformation? In Acts 22.16, as Saul gave his own account of the event, he includes some details that Luke omitted. Acts 22, beginning in verse 12, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me. And he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. All of this is familiar so far, but listen to verse 16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Here is the explanation of Acts 9.18. And he arose and was baptized. He was doing what he had been commanded to do by the preacher of the gospel. While it is true that Jesus had brought Saul to faith in him through his personal appearance and his words on the road, he had left the task of telling the things appointed to a preacher in keeping with God's consistent pattern in Romans 10, 14-17. And what did the preacher command Saul to do? To arise and be baptized, literally to have himself baptized or to submit to baptism without any delay. And why did the preacher command this? He explains. In baptism, Saul would have the blessed privilege of washing his sins away and calling on the name of the Lord. This is in perfect keeping with the preaching of Peter in Acts 2 and 3, where he announced that through baptism, the penitent believer in Jesus Christ, which Saul was, would receive remission of sins and have his sins blotted out washed away. And Ananias said that in baptism, Saul would call on the name of the Lord. Do you remember this phrase? We heard it once before from Ananias himself in Acts 9 and verse 14, where he used the term to describe the disciples of Jesus Christ. So why did Ananias command Saul to be baptized? So that his sins would be forgiven he would be saved, and he would become a disciple of Jesus, a Christian. This is the story of Saul's conversion. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. 
When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey.